Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, The Songs of Ascent. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Psalm 128, hear now the reading of God's holy word. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Blessed Lord, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The fear of God. The fear of God. We hear it. Sometimes we hear it out of the pulpit. But it may not always be understood, as I say, in the pew. Now, part of the problem with that expression can be cultural. It may stem from the modern perspective of fear. In that everything that is feared or that we fear is bad. But in the church, there are other ways where this term can be confused. I mean, I think about in terms of the context of American Christianity, and I heard someone say, fearing God, well, fearing God is so Old Testament. (laughs) Loving God is New Testament. Well, that's not true either. Uh, In fact, that's a lie. Um, The reality is is that godly fear is biblically affirmed, running the course, the totality of the Old and New Testaments. It's, It's a biblical expression that we need to understand since, well, since how's the psalm begin? Look with me. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. We desire blessing. You might say we hunger for blessing. Desiring and hungry for blessing is a good thing. We are to desire to be blessed. And so to help us understand what the fear of the Lord is, let me provide this distinction. Being afraid of God and fearing God are not the same thing. For example, in Exodus... After Israel crossed over the Red Sea, you may recall, and they journeyed into the wilderness, they assembled at the base of Mount Sinai. 
And there the Lord revealed Himself to them. His manifest presence, you may recall, descending upon the mountain with accompanying thunder and flashes of lightning. The mountain, the mountain scripture says, smoked. And a supernatural trumpet blasted continuously. And the people, this should be expected, the people fled, trembling in terror. And do you remember what they cried out to Moses? In terror they cried out, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And again, I think that their reaction is, is understandable, perhaps justifiable, but Moses in that moment was quick to correct and direct, saying this, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. But note there that Moses tells Israel not to fear, and to fear. Now in the Hebrew, the same word root is used here. And it's rightly translated in the English Standard Version as fear. But clearly we can see by context that there is a distinction here between fear and, well, fear. In other words, we might put it this way. There is a wrong fear and there is a right fear. We see the same distinction in a hymn that every one of us is familiar with. John Newton's Amazing Grace. We all know that hymn. We've sung it a number of times. But let me draw your attention to something in that hymn that you might have just sung right over and missed. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Hmm. Now, Newton describes a fear that grace teaches. But he also teaches us to sing of a fear that grace relieves. A right fear and a wrong fear. So God's grace then is the origin of godly fear. Finding its fulfillment in faith. As John Calvin put it, under the fear of the Lord is included the whole of godliness and religion. And this cannot exist without faith. So what Moses taught Israel and what Newton's hymn teaches us to sing is that to fear God rightly is to know Him. Not as a tyrant, but as a father. Not to cower from Him, but to come to Him by faith. Fearing the Lord also connotes a reverence. It also connotes an awe, a reverence and an awe, a, a respectful recognition of who God is as our holy God. This means that as His children, we honor and we glorify Him with our lives. All of our lives, like our work, we should fear God rightly. Like in our family, we should fear God rightly. In our church, we should fear God rightly, among other things. And as this is the case, 
It should not surprise us that the psalmist chooses these three areas of our ordinary, everyday life, work, family, and church, to reveal God's blessings upon those who fear Him. Indeed, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. However, I want to pause here before we dive into the text, and I want to add this caveat. As we seek to be faithful students of God's Word, we must understand that the Bible contains an array of literary genres. And we must read the Bible according to these genres, how the biblical books were written. For example, if you read apocalyptic literature like Revelation the same way that you read epistolary literature like Romans... Well, you're going to come up with some really wild and crazy stuff, right? You have to read them as they were written. If we are to understand Scripture rightly, we must understand first how it was written. This psalm, for example, fits squarely within the genre of wisdom literature, which in summary teaches us the characteristics and practices of living a godly life. In this psalm, for example, we see God's blessing upon labor. We see God's blessing upon family. We see God's blessing upon the fellowship of His people. And it is a beautiful thing. And this is a beautiful psalm. But we must remember that wisdom literature is general in scope. And as such, it is, and here's the key, it is descriptive, not predictive. It is descriptive, not predictive. In other words, as we look at the blessings that come from fearing God in this psalm, we must remember that they are not the only blessings that He gives, nor does their absence convey unfaithfulness. And this is where I'm going with this. So you bear with me as this is, I know, a long caveat. But it's important that we get this right before we dive in. For those who fear God, He blesses them with the fruit of their labor. But there will be some who fear God rightly and labor in fruitless work and no fruit. For those who fear God, He blesses them with a spouse and children. But there will be some who fear God rightly and never marry or have any children. For those who fear God, He blesses them with the community of the church. But there will be some who fear God rightly and are persecuted or they're isolated and unable to enjoy the fellowship with other believers in the church. So we need to be discerning students of Scripture, don't we? Looking at the blessings that come from fearing God while knowing that to fear the Lord in and of itself is enough. And He is our ultimate blessing. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest blessing in the world. And so let's look first at godly fear and labor. 
Now, for us to think rightly about labor, we must understand that the, what the Bible teaches, and that is this, and listen to me closely so you don't miss this. God's gift of work is not a curse, but it's cursed. And the, the distinction is key here. I'm not, it's not a play on words. As God gave man work through the creation ordinance to work and keep the garden or work and keep creation, so He blessed those created in His image well before the fall. God worked in creation. We work in keeping creation, you could say. But when man fell in sin, God did not withdraw the blessing of work. He didn't take work away. In fact, if you read Genesis chapter 3 carefully and look at the post-fall words, we find that God did not remove work, but instead He cursed the ground, introduced pain, permitted thorns and thistles, giving us bread by the sweat of our brow. Though cursed, work in and of itself is not. In fact, and here's the tie-in here with this psalm, in fact, God uses work to bless us. Look at the text with me. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. So while we may work, for our daily bread that God provides, for those who fear Him, He blesses both. Our work and our daily bread and His provision of it. But we must be careful here not to interpret this as a guarantee. God's blessing through our work does not mean that we will always have our dream job or that all the work that we do is always fulfilling. I told you a couple of weeks ago uh, that I think it was uh, billionaire Warren Buffett that said that he tap dances on the way to work every day. Well, I don't. <laughs> Sometimes my feet are dragging behind me, especially on a Monday, right? I don't know about this tap dancing thing, but as work is cursed, work can at times, and let's be honest, sometimes our work can feel menial, monotonous and mindless. As I told my children as they began looking for the... And they're not here, right? I'm not sure if they're watching via video. We'll hope that they're not. I told my children when they started looking for their dream job at 21 years old, <laughs> I said, work is... Um, work's work. It's not always going to be fun or even fulfilling, but it beats the alternative of no work at all, right? And as it turns out, working as a bank teller, a landscaper, and an errand boy for a used car lot were not their dream jobs. Go figure. But each delivered a regular paycheck. Go figure. The fruit of their labor, proverbial bread. But work can be fulfilling. And I love my job. And this is not hyperbole. I literally love my job. And while I don't tap dance on the way to work, God has blessed me with a job that I enjoy doing, and at times it can be fun. And one of the inherent dangers that comes to sinners like me, and you 
too, right? Is that we can make the Lord's blessing our Lord. And when a gift becomes a God, the blessing becomes a beast. And this is the scenario that Solomon addresses in Psalm 127. I would imagine you have Psalm 128 in front of you. You can just glance over at 127 and see in verses 1 and 2, Solomon says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The bread of anxious toil is bitter. Worried work from dawn to dusk delivers not the sweet fruit of God's blessing, but the vanity of discontentment. Calvin says that our tendency is to launch from the Lord's blessing into an insatiable covetousness for more, and then more, and then more, and more, while simultaneously redefining happiness as ease, as honors, as great wealth. And when that becomes our definition of Blessed, the blessing becomes a curse. The remedy, as we see in this psalm, is reorientation. The remedy is reorientation. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. When our work is rooted in the fear of the Lord first, when our walk is in His ways, we work Not for ourselves, but for God's glory. When our work is rooted in the fear of the Lord, the fruit of our labor we see as a gift from God, who is the giver of all good things. That is a foreign concept, I might add, to our culture. We think work is our deal. We earned it. We got it. Nope. It's a gift from God. And God blesses us through it. The fruit of our labor, as the psalmist puts it. And so when our work is rooted in the fear of the Lord, even work can be a blessing. The second example that the psalmist gives is the blessing of the family. God's blessing of family. And while perhaps foreign to our age, the fruitfulness of childbearing was considered one of God's great blessings. Try that on for size in our culture today. You know, the way that God blesses this is through childbearing. What kind of maniac are you? Right? And yet, if you look at the biblical testimony, I think about uh, Abraham and Sarah. I think, of course, God's blessing of Isaac in their old age. You think about Jacob and Rachel and on and on the examples go. We see this in these patriarchal examples. And while our culture may say, well, children are just a burden. Here's what Solomon says. Look over at that other psalm. Verse 3. Behold, 
Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Therefore, in the home of those who fear the Lord, here's what the psalmist says. Get ready because this is so anti-culture, it may, it may blow your mind. Your wife will be a fruitful vine within your house. Now the vine in biblical literature serves as a metaphor, as I'm sure that you've picked up here. But in studying, I found that it's used as a metaphor in a number of different ways. For example, in, and believe it or not, in Judges, the vine represents uh, inebriated celebration. <laughs> in Song of Solomon, it represents sexual charm. The vine here represents what? Well, it represents childbearing fruitfulness. And as I looked at this text, immediately I thought about the woman of the Proverbs, the promiscuous woman. And it is fascinating to see the Hebrew expressions, how they contrast one another. Let me give you an example. In looking at Proverbs chapter 7, it says that the promiscuous wife is described, and I might add the very first word is loud and wayward. And then, and we don't pick up on this in English, but there is a Hebrew idiom that is played on here by the sage in Proverbs in which it's translated, her feet do not stay at home. And that's a Hebrew idiom that essentially conveys the idea of she's loud, she's wayward, and she is unfaithful. That's the general concept. And so then when you look at that in contrast to this psalm, the woman who fears the Lord is where? Within the house. Which is not a Hebrew idiom for Susie Homemaker. It is a Hebrew idiom meaning she's faithful. She fears the Lord and because of her fear for the Lord, she is a faithful wife. Unlike the promiscuous wife of the Proverbs. Likewise, in this home, it's not just a faithful wife that we find but, and of course the presumption is that it's a faithful husband as well, but we also find children, a home filled with children. Solomon says in Psalm 127, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. But in this psalm, it's different, isn't it? Here, the psalmist describes the children not as arrows to be shot, but olive shoots. Around the table. And this simile points to future growth, promised fruit, symbolizing longevity and productivity all around the family table. It's a beautiful picture, both of these, the vine and the olive shoots, poetically. This is beautiful scripture, is it not? But these children, one scholar observes, and I think this is right, are not like grass which is here today but is gone tomorrow. Rather, they are olive trees that in due time bear fruit. The blessedness of the godly will extend to other generations. What a privilege God bestows on His children in this life that we may already taste the first fruits of our heritage. It's a beautiful, the first fruits of our beautiful, of our, of our heritage is a poetic description of we see the blessing of godliness in our children's children. 
That is a beautiful picture. And in an age when the family of one male husband and one female wife and a quiver full of children is seen as out of vogue and perhaps detestable and perhaps a curse rather than a blessing, it is really important for us to remember this. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The psalm is saying, you want to see a picture of blessing upon God's people? Well, here it is. Thus shall the man be blessed. Culture no more determines what marriage and the family are as what a blessing is. God alone does. He defines marriage. He defines the family. And He defines what a blessing is. And we who fear the Lord would do well to stop looking for the world's affirmation or endorsement. Marriage between a man and a woman who fear the Lord is a blessing from heaven. And scripture says that it's also a gospel picture of Christ's love for his beloved church. Covenant children who are raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord, they're a blessing too. An example of God's faithfulness from generation to generation to generation. And a family who fears the Lord together around the proverbial table, as the psalmist describes it, is a blessing from the Lord. A blessing to themselves, we see, but also, note the transition in this psalm, also a blessing to the fellowship. To the fellowship or the community of Israel. And so in conclusion, I want us to look at godly fear and community. Here's how the psalm concludes. Note the tie-in, but also the transition. In fact, scholars say that in this last portion of the psalm, it is perhaps best to picture a priest standing in the temple on Mount Zion, praying for the people, and we hear this. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. It's a beautiful blessing, perhaps benediction. It's a place, uh, a pronouncement from a place of worship. Zion, for blessings flow from the Lord's presence for and to His people. But also we see within this a petition. And this is important for us to note. It is a petition for blessing upon Jerusalem, upon the children, upon the nation. For Old Covenant Israel, you see, these were integrally connected. The blessing of beholding David's dynasty. The blessing of seeing the future generations. The blessing of peace upon the nation. And all of these Israel saw connected. But God's answer to this priestly prayer is found not in one nation or race, but in the true and perfect Israel, Jesus Christ our Lord. For in Christ we worship not in the temple on Mount Zion, but as Jesus said, we worship in spirit and in truth as the assembled temple of God. 
And he who is the rightful heir of David's throne reigns as king of kings and lord of lords over heavenly Jerusalem. As his subjects, we are, Peter says, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We and our children and our children's children are by faith. We are like, Scripture says, living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peace be upon Israel indeed. Peace be upon all who believe in the true Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, we as the church, as the true temple of God, we enjoy a spirit-indwelled fellowship, a Christian community that the children of ancient Israel longed for. You heard just a little bit of that this morning in John's words of affirmation and encouragement to us, but we see it consistently over and over again. You may recall that one day while Jesus was teaching, He was interrupted with a message. And here was the message to Jesus. Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now we might say that His blessed mother and fellow olive shoots were seeking a place at the table. But do you remember how Jesus replied? I would imagine you do. He said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And we know it wasn't a question of identification. Looking around himself and with characteristic hyperbole, here is what he said. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus' point was not to disrespect his family, but rather it was to direct us beyond the flesh and blood. For the Spirit of Christ is stronger than the bond of birth. And the family He creates is founded not upon the blood in our veins, but on the blood of the cross of Christ. And as Christ's church, the family of God, we are indeed a community of those who fear the Lord. A fellowship of those who believe. We are made up of sinners who labor not to merit God's favor, but who rest in the mercy of His amazing grace. And are saved not by the sweat of our brow, but through faith in Christ alone. By the same grace we assemble as the body of Christ, enjoying the blessings of the Lord's fellowship in our worship and in our relationships with one another. And as a family, we are baptized into one communion and we are nourished at one table. And as a family, we look not to the transient whims of culture, but the eternal word of God to direct us. And like the psalmist, we lift up our prayers to the Lord. To say that we are a blessed people 
is not to imply perfection, but a perfect Savior. Which is why, as His redeemed people, you and I in Christ can truly say, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank You for the truth of Your blessed gospel. And that as You bless those who fear You, You have blessed us richly indeed in Christ. We pray that we would be a people who are faithful to Your Word and faithful to live out our lives in righteousness before You. We pray that we would be a people who seek to be faithful to the blessings that You have bestowed upon us, so also to walk faithfully in the times and dark valleys where there seems no blessing. For we know that You are blessing enough. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m., Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.